When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Got a great show for you today, the Know Your Foe episode for the Kansas City Chiefs. We've been looking forward to this game all offseason. Now, probably after Monday night, have a little bit more apprehension among Ravens fans. 
Well, we got a great guest for you here, Seth Kaiser from The Athletic joining us. Seth, how are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. How about yourself? No complaints, Seth. We're, uh, we're very happy to have you uh, talk about the Chiefs today. Uh, first of all, tell us about where folks can find your work other than The, the Athletic. Uh, sure. You can also find stuff that I do at the Chief of the North newsletter, which is a Substack I started last year because that's what everyone's doing right now. So I thought that might be fun. Um, and so there in the athletic, those are the two places you can find me. Um, the, the Substack is primarily Chiefs oriented, but also talking about kind of larger trends in the NFL in terms of what it takes to win versus what narratives say it takes to win. Okay. All right. Sounds great stuff. So we'll get it right into the Chiefs here. And I think uh, we always like to talk about what offseason moves, what's new with the Kansas City Chiefs, obviously a perennial Super Bowl contender. And, and I think in most people's minds, the favorite this year. Uh, tell us, though, about what, what's changed with the Chiefs this offseason. Sure. I think uh, the biggest change with the Chiefs is something that's been really largely documented after what can only be described as a disastrous Super Bowl where, you know, Patrick Mahomes was made to look about as mortal as he's ever looked. And a very injured offensive line got completely taken apart by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It was a, it was a it was a tough game. You all saw it. It was it was ugly. Um, and with with that ugliness in mind, they've completely revamped the offensive line. The group they have out there now is top to bottom different than who they had starting last year. Left tackle to right tackle. I'm not sure I've ever seen that done before. Um, but that's what they did. Um, they, they, you know, they signed Joe Tooney at left guard, traded for Orlando Brown at left tackle, um, drafted Creed Humphrey at center, then drafted Trey Smith at right guard. He won that spot in kind of a surprise. And uh, Lucas Niang, who they drafted last year, is now the right tackle. So that's been the biggest change in the team is a top-to-bottom overhaul of the offensive line. Uh, we're going to have to go over those players individually a little bit later. But uh, how about other developmental surprises for the team? So uh, draft results, not necessarily from this year, but guys who are, who are taking a big step maybe between year one and two or two and three. Sure. Guys that they're really counting on this year to take another step forward. You're seeing more of that on the defensive side of the ball. Um, the offense, other than the offensive line, you know, the skill position players, they seem to have adopted kind of a it ain't broke, don't fix it approach. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, um, they they are they're really relying on a couple of guys in terms of developmentally. Um, more specifically, and one who's not going to play against the Ravens, uh, Willie Gay Jr., who maybe had the best training camp of any Chiefs defender at inside linebacker. Um, tremendously talented athlete, um, one of the best athletes on the defense, but unfortunately he suffered an injury, so he's going to be out for about the next three or four weeks maybe be back a little bit sooner. Some other guys that they're really relying on uh, this year in terms of developmentally, Legereus Sneed was a rookie last season, mm-hmm. had a really strong year, but it got broken up a little bit by injuries. So he didn't get quite as much publicity as maybe you'd expect. They're really excited about him. They view him as the best corner on the team and with star potential. So that's been exciting to watch um, on the back end. In terms of, of anywhere else, one thing that's been a little bit different this year Anthony Hitchens, who's been a stalwart at linebacker, he's not a second or third year player, but he dropped some weight this offseason kind of with this uh, very public intent to play a little bit faster after the Chiefs have had some issues with speed at the second level. So that's been something we've been keeping an eye on as well. In terms of everything else, probably the, the some of the bigger changes up front, they've got a lot more rotation this year from the interior with Tershawn Wharton, Colin Saunders. Um, those are a couple of defensive tackles who also can play on the end in a pinch. They've been rotating a lot more 
after a tough second year, Colin Saunders in particular has looked pretty good to Sean Wharton after a surprisingly strong rookie year for an undrafted free agent out of a tech school, <laughs> essentially. He he played surprisingly well last year. They're playing primarily pass, uh, pass rush downs, that sort of thing. And in terms of a final change, uh, Chris Jones, obviously not a new player, they are utilizing him way more at defensive end now than they have at any other point. Almost comically so, it's it's been talked about every year for a couple of years to the point that fans expected it to be something of a bit. And instead, they're actually lining him up at defensive end on the majority of the snaps these days. And I, I assume that's partly because of the presence of newcomer Jaron Reed that they grabbed from the Seahawks on a one-year deal. So Jones is a player, obviously, I want to, we want to talk about in, in some detail here. But rotation <laughs> is something you mentioned here, and that's something the Ravens have really believed in. And, and almost any player that they acquire on the defensive line, they'll end up cutting his snaps by the rotation they do and some of the scheme they do with their outside linebackers. With Jones, is, is it going to re- relate to a snap cut for him? Because he ca- snap count cut for him because he has been one of the very heavily worked Chiefs in these past few years. Uh, one would think so. They generally seem to try to keep their defensive linemen to 60, 65% of the snaps. That seems to be what they attempt to do. With Jones, as you kind of noticed, they, that hasn't really been the case. And a lot of that has been because they haven't had really good defensive line depth. And when you've got a superstar and your depth isn't great, I think it's very difficult to ever pull him off the field. Um, this year, I, it looks like they're really trying more of a rotation. An example would be on even the first drive against the Browns. Um, Jones came off the field for three or four consecutive snaps with Wharton and Saunders rotating inside and then finding, you know, uh, Kando, who's a rookie, Josh Kando, and a few, and, and uh, playing a few other guys on the edge there. So I think they're going to try to lower his snaps just a little bit with the idea that his efficacy be increased. I love that the Ravens do that. And I think it frustrates a lot of fans who just really don't understand how difficult it is to sustain work in the trenches from a defensive rusher standpoint with how much running you just have to do, just get to and from the huddle. Um, they, they just get tired and they lose their efficacy, even the stars. So I think you're going to see a slight downtick in his, his uh, snap count, but hopefully you'll see an uptick in his efficiency numbers. One of the keys to, to really getting good rotational value out of players is to play few defensive snaps. I noticed that the Chiefs only played, looks like 60 here, uh, defensive snaps in this first game. Jones still playing 47. 47 out of 60, kind of a manageable rotation number. 47 snaps, kind of at the top end of where I would yep. think a, a, a defensive lineman or even an edge rusher would be. Uh, on The Ravens had Campbell playing a simple percentage, similar percentage of snaps, 60 out of 80 in week one. And that's too many snaps, just pure and simple. That's too many snaps for a man his age, a defensive lineman in general. Um, and, you know, you, you, I think we really saw, saw some of that left on the field uh, on Monday night, unfortunately. Well, let's, let's move on a little bit to long-run cap situation for the Chiefs because this is one thing I think outsiders look at the Kansas City Chiefs and they keep saying, where are they getting the money for this next <laughs> big contract? Sure. Um, that, that has been one of the more fun things I've observed over the last two years, especially, is this whole, like, how are they doing this? Because I'll be honest, as a Chiefs fan, I used to feel that way about the Broncos all the time. And it's kind of nice to see that kind of angst directed elsewhere. So the, the most obvious answer is in Patrick Mahomes' contract, where 
they they had a, the term that got used that became the the flash term of the day when he signed the contract was rolling guarantees. And that was part of it. Well, he's he's got this amount of rolling guarantees. And everyone said, what in the name of God are rolling guarantees? I didn't know. And it's my job to know these things. Um, basically, one thing that they can do virtually every year with Mahomes' contract is convert a great deal of it to signing bonus money. And that's something you can do in a lot of contracts. But the money moves around in kind of a goofy way. But basically, every year for the first four years of Mahomes' deal, it's designed to backload the deal just a little bit more for the anticipated days after, you know, the new TV deal money hits the new gambling money deal hits that sort of thing where they ideally there's so much money to go around that as a percentage, Mahomes' cap hit becomes less and less relevant. So they've basically been creative with the cap in that respect in a way that can certainly bite you down the road if you're not extremely careful in other ways. So that they've done some of that kind of New Orleans Saints style can kicking down the road. One thing they've done is they've kept most of their contracts short enough and the guaranteed money short enough. So like Frank Clark would be a good example. Uh, he's taking an inordinate amount of cap space this year for a guy who didn't play nearly at his best level last year, but they have done enough with his structure in that next year, if they wanted to, they could cut him. And even though they'd have some dead money, they'd save about 14.5 million against the cap. So it's mostly been through structure and creativity and basically trying to stagger those big cap hits. Now, that doesn't come without a price. That's one reason why Tyron Matthew hasn't been re-signed is because it's hard to structure all these things together. So we'll kind of see what's next for them because I know they want to keep Matthew and then they're going to have Orlando Brown to pay. And so that's going to be the real test for them in the next couple of years. Do you, do you expect Orlando Brown to certainly be retained by the Chiefs? I mean, one thing that's interesting with him is it's not quite a... a like a Laramie Tunsil situation where they gave up like, you know, multiple first round draft picks or something like our Jamal Adams situation where if they don't get a return, like if they don't keep him long-term, it's an unmitigated disaster. They gave up the equivalent of a very late first round pick. So obviously that's still less than ideal if you only keep that guy around for two years, because that's what it would be. Uh, There's really no, no one has any idea that anyone other than Brown will get the franchise tag if they can't get something done with him, because the assumption is they'll get something done with Matthew because he wants to be there and they want him there. The thing with Brown is he basically is going to get a one year or maybe two year tryout to show whether or not he can be an okay tackle in Andy Reid's system or a really good tackle in Andy Reid's system. And I think that's, what's going to make the difference in whether it's a two year rental or whether it's a long-term thing. I think from the chief's perspective, even if it's a two year rental, that was worth it to provide the best possible Super Bowl window in a market where left tackles just weren't available. Right. right. I mean, they, they, I mean, you, you know, tackles themselves, they just weren't available when they swung and missed on Trent Williams, which was their first choice. And when you watch Trent Williams play, I think you understand why. Um, they, they knew they had to do something because they couldn't let what happened to Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl and in a few other games, uh, last season they couldn't let that happen again and Mitch Schwartz and Eric Fisher were never walking back through that door so they had to do something and I think even that two-year rental to provide for adequate play and not a weakness will be in their mind enough even if for some reason they're not able to keep them around long term 
Let's talk about Schwartz for a second here, because there's rumors circulating this week. I'm not sure if it's, it might be real or not, that he might be coming to the Ravens. Uh, w- would you think that would be a reasonable tackle alternative at this point for Baltimore? I don't want to speak on Mitch's behalf, um, but I would just note that from all indications where he's at in his recovery process, he's months and months from being able to play. Um, He's he, you can just see him in interviews. He's probably down 20, 30, 40 pounds. Um, He's, he's right now in a recovery process where he's kind of doing things where you can live day to day and do it well. And, and again, he, he's made it very clear. He actually had a recent interview with fan sided where he kind of talked about maybe, you know, one day we'll see kind of where it's at in terms of full recovery. But my understanding is that that's not really very close. And so for the, for the Ravens, it might not be an alternative in except maybe to the very end of the season. If that, I appreciate you disabusing me of that because we've, we really hear a lot of things. Some of it's Twitter based and you know, you, you follow your own team's recovery better than you follow the league's general recovery. And I appreciate having someone with inside knowledge of what's going on with Mitchell Schwartz. You know, things have been mentioned about Marshall Yonda returning to Baltimore. And if you've seen anything about Marshall Yonda, what he's doing, he's <laughs> yeah. lost like 60 or 70 pounds. I mean, he's, he's, yeah. a, he's a very slender looking dude now. I mean, that, that ain't happening. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. And I would just note with him, he's also doing certain things things that make you think he's preparing for that next phase yeah. you know he's he's doing kind of his mitch in the kitch youtube series he's a wonderful chef um he's appearing with robert mays on the athletic football show every week he's going to be a tremendous commentator if he wants to be i've told him and i know other people have told him you got to start a sub stack you you need to because he's posting all this incredible information on the offensive line for free and it's you know man you gotta you gotta work for someone here um, so he has a, a varied number of interests. And I think the running thought for people that cover the Chiefs is that odds are he's going to retire while he can still move around well and that sort of thing. And as a guy who's purportedly and everything I've ever seen is a really good guy, that's kind of what I want for him, honestly. And 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 if he comes back, you guys can't have him. He's ours. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's keep moving here. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, obviously the focus of everything Chiefs. Let's, let's talk about maybe what's new with him can always talk strengths and weaknesses if there are any for Patrick Mahomes and and what maybe is different about his game this season as opposed to past sure you know obviously we're all just trying to figure it out with one game in and it's tough to figure out what things are matchup based and what things are going to be new one thing that I saw against the Browns um, in the uh, in the Chiefs comeback win that I was there for that was awesome, but you know that's not really an analysis. I'm just saying that. Um, one thing I saw was that it looks like they've got a real emphasis this season on trying to have him step up into the pocket more, and that's a little different than years past where he's been prone to drifting. And he's always admitted that. And it's me. It makes him an incredibly difficult guy to pass protect for, for the tackles, especially. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's been this chicken or egg question. We've not long known Mitch Schwartz is a great pass protector. Eric Fisher's a pretty good pass protector on the other side. That's what they've had for years. There's long been this chicken or egg question. You know, does Patrick Mahomes drift too far because he doesn't trust the interior of the line, which has been problematic for years? Or does is that just a natural tendency of his? Um, so is the pass protection look worse than it is? Or is he making it look better than it is? And it's tough to say. But I saw against Cleveland, there seemed to be a demonstrated intent to let Brown and Lucas Niang, who's now at right tackle, who are very different players from Schwartz and Fisher. Uh, very, very different in terms of size, the way they win, type of sets they succeed in. Um, there was a there was definitely a trend of them trying to just push the Browns edges just around the corner over and over again, rather than trying to take really deep vertical sets, which is what you usually saw Schwartz and Fisher win with. That's not Brown Brown and that's not Brown's game at all, which you guys know him well. He's not a vertical set tackle, generally speaking. He doesn't have the foot speed for it. Right. Um he, he definitely relies on using his length well to push a push a defender south of the pocket. And that was gonna be one of my points. We'll go we'll get yeah. back to it when we we'll talk the offensive line about Brown's game against Cleveland. But uh, but continue with Mahomes. I'm sorry. Oh no, no worries at all. It's I, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on Brown and how you think he'll fit into the offense because that's been a subject of a lot of debate with people who cover the Chiefs. Um, so because that's how Brown wins, Andy Reid is a coach who likes to use players to their strengths, and so he's not going to ask you know Brown to play like Eric Fisher, and he's certainly not going to ask a a rookie in Lucas Niang to play like one of the greatest technicians to ever play right tackle. That would be insane. And so they're having them try to push them wide. And I think that's why you saw such a concerted effort from the Chiefs to improve their interior line. They wanted to add consistency, so they went and got one of the most consistent players in the NFL in Joe Tooney. Then they grabbed one of the most consistent centers in college football in Creed Humphrey. And honestly, I think they lucked out a little bit with Trey Smith, at least so far with what the returns are on him. And I think the idea is there with a strong interior, similar to how we've watched Tom Brady operate in the pocket for years with impunity, with strong interiors. I think that's their plan is to try to get him in the pocket a little more and then allow for some of those scrambles that he does to maybe take place going inside where a tackle has pushed an edge rusher wide. And maybe the idea is that will allow for him to have a little more time to do things a little more within structure. Okay. Uh, in terms of, of the magic, the play extension and whatnot, mm. is it all still there if he has to play within a, a, a more pocketed structure? It looks like it so far. Um, that's that's the thing with him. You know, the question is always going to be how much do you want to, you know, what did, you know, how much do you saddle a Mustang and all that stuff. You, you want to be cautious with it. What we saw against the Browns was Mahomes was using um, different bailout areas rather than just bailing out, you know, backing up 10, 15 yards, you know, and and then running around to his right. Instead, he was stepping up and then, if necessarily, bailing out to the left or right to where it's essentially he's doing some of the same things just out of a different gap. And what was interesting to me is I think uh, choosing, a you know, the, the, the B gap instead to kind of bail out of if necessary, it seems to get him north south a little bit quicker if he needs to scramble. Now, what it's going to be interesting to me is to see how teams try to account for that by maybe having a linebacker spy him or something to where they can come up and hit him much faster than if he's bailing out around the edge. 
Yeah, I, that's that's a great point. And, I, you know, obviously with Lamar Jackson, we have a lot of those considerations as well. Four-man pass rush, you hate it in a sense if it's effective, but you love to get a four-man pass rush that you can manipulate in the middle and create gaps from B to B that allow for an escape there that uh, that could be very productive. Right. Let's – I'm sorry, Chase, something more to say? Oh, I just said right. <laughs> <laughs> Always worried about about interrupting the guest here. Uh, let's let's talk about the current state of the offensive line and go left to right here again. You've talked about some of this. Orlando Brown, you know, we can we can obviously talk a little bit about him. He's a, he's a Ravens player that I've scored his whole career and been been uh, you know very happy to have him as a Raven. Uh, I was a little disappointed, frankly, in the return they got for him. It was about a mid-second round pick in terms of net value of the picks exchange. The, the, the Chiefs gave up number 31 to the Ravens, but they, but they, in terms of what they got back, it really ended up being about a net of the mid-second round pick, which to me was a little low as a return for, for, uh, for Brown. I think in the current NFL market, I would agree. Um, and I think that was probably demonstrated somewhat the fact that, you know, there really is more going on here than what we see on the field. And you would know better than I would, but it at least seems like Brown's statements that he really wanted to play left tackle, that he really wouldn't be happy He's sticking around playing right tackle, played some role in shipping him out. Uh, maybe the maybe that was the Ravens smartly realizing, hey, we're going to get as much return now as we ever will. You know, if he has maybe a down year because one reason or another, or if he you know makes some noise about being unhappy in the locker room, whatever, we're not going to get as good a return. So we should just take this now. We don't care who it's from, which I was really interested in. A lot of people, whenever people ask me, well, what about Orlando Brown? They could trade for him. And I always said that's insane that the Ravens would never do that. And I, lo and behold, I was wrong. Um, and so I dealing think that's him part to of an what AFC, Dealing him to an AFC rival is a little bit strange to us. So, yeah. so from, from that perspective, I, I, one, other, one other point with, with, that relates to this. But in terms of the, 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 the nature of trading him at all, I think it was really more a case of the Ravens had a stack of 2018 draftees that they had yep. to make some choices about. It was such a great draft. They'd already traded Hayden Hurst the year before. Uh, you know, Brown being traded this year is just the second, but they still have to sign Andrews. They have to sign Jackson, of course. They have Deshaun Elliott on the back end. They need to look at Bradley Bozeman, Anthony Averett. I mean, all guys came from that same draft who are, you know, fine players, and they really need to consider whether they keep them or not. I think the the big surprise with that lack of tackles on the market is also seeing that a rival in the AFC had such a glaring weak spot and being willing to say, hey, no, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out with that. And so I think both of their seasons are going to be judged a great deal based on how Brown plays in Andy Reid's offense this year. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And it's, it's uh, interesting some of the points you're making about, about the desire to, to create more of a fixed pocket for Mahomes, given who Brown is a tackle. There's my dog going nuts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but he's, he's, he was a guy in Baltimore who was surprisingly good at left tackle to finish the year for Ronnie Stanley last year. And a lot of it was done by, by pushing that defender south of the mm-hmm. pocket, as I say, 12 to 6 blocking, I like to call it, um, uh, you know, around the, the edge of the pocket. Very different from Ronnie Stanley, who gives ground to maintain his, his foot position in front of the defender. So you almost have to bull rush Ronnie Stanley, as opposed to Brown, it's very difficult to pull a rush, easier to get around the edge, but Brown tries to use his length to offset that weakness and, and did a very good job in Baltimore of it. 
Absolutely. And one thing worth noting, and I bet you saw this studying his film, it usually with Brown, especially trying to, you know, direct guys around the edge, it doesn't always look pretty. It often looks more like almost like a chase technique, right? Where he is trying to do a horizontal set, the the a speed rusher will start to get around him, and he's able to turn his hips and chase him down and use that length to direct him and then give him a good shove just wide of the pocket. And time after time, it looks like he almost lost the rep. And because of that, it looks really ugly during one-on-ones in camp. There were a lot of very nervous Chiefs fans. Let me tell you, um, watching one-on-ones where it looked like he was giving up the arc over and over, but during 11-on-11s and during preseason, that didn't seem like near as much of a problem. Yeah, one thing, in, in ter- I score offensive line play, of course, week, week to week, and the, the thing that, that you really get to understand is that the, the prettiness of the rep does not matter unless you really think it has long-term negative implications. And with Brown saying it's just – it's a back pylon of the pocket is what I call that when he could, when he could get that speed rusher past that edge. Ricky Wagner had the same kind of technique. So it wasn't like we didn't know what to expect from a guy who who tried to do that rep after rep and really depended on getting that done. And with Brown and with Wagner as well before him, it created a lot of very close pressure calls for me where I had to decide, OK, is that within the, the space that he invaded the cone that the the quarterback has to step in through his way to find a pressure. And, and in most cases, he, he's, he was very good at getting the back pylon and, and, uh, and like Wagner, you know, having a, having a, a, a player before him really helped me score that, uh, I, I think, more accurately than, than, uh, than I would have otherwise. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great way of framing it. I do the same thing. You know, you chart as a win or a loss. And he, his wins, he, he maybe won't have quite as many wins as some tackles would, but he might have fewer losses. And, and for me, with, with offensive line play, losses are far more important than wins. Oh, yeah. Because a loss can derail a play. Yeah. And a drive. I mean, you know, you, you, oh, yeah. you, your, your penalties and your, your sacks, I mean, they, they have enormous impact. So in a lot of ways, an offensive line scoring system needs to be one that is a frequency and severity of error system. It's kind of like fielding percentage, if you think about it. And it would be better stated as fielding percentage if a two base error cost you minus two instead of just, instead of just one. Absolutely. And that's that's where it becomes so crucial. And I always tell people, I, I just don't care how often an old lineman went. It, it looks fun, certainly. And in the run game, it might matter a little more like a dominant win. But generally speaking, what I chart as a neutral snap, I've actually had a couple of offensive linemen tell me that it occasionally drives them nuts that I use neutral. Because mm-hmm. they said, it's not. It's a win or it's not. You right. either lose or you didn't. And they're right and I'm wrong, but I'm just going to keep doing it because how I've been doing it for 10 years. <laughs> I just, I can't help myself. And I do like to point out how often they do have a big win. And that, that's with Brown. The losses don't seem to pile up. Now, I'm going to be charting his snaps from this last week against the Browns. The only problem with that is going to be, and a lot of Chiefs fans are in a little bit of a, they're, they're a little worried. But, I mean, that's going to be skewed because he was by and large matched up against Miles Garrett all day. Mm-hmm. And people, they say they understand, but they don't always, that you do have to grade these things on a curve. Losing right. 10 times in a game against average Joe pass rusher is a disaster. Losing 10 times against Miles Garrett is a not great day, but understandable. Losing five to seven times against Miles Garrett is a great day. 
Like that's like, Hey, you've done everything you can. You're going to lose sometimes. It's kind of, I mean, I would assume, you know, when you, you know, flip it, if you were charting an offensive lineman against Chris Jones, it's, Oh, well, he gave up a sack. Well, of course he did. That's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a specific adjustment that I make for uh, quality of opponent and also includes things like highlight blocks and other things like maybe fumble recoveries that are not included in a offensive line scoring system. So, you know, this is a fascinating topic and we run the risk of going 30 minutes on this alone. <laughs> Sometimes, Seth, I'd love to like sit down with you and just talk offensive line scoring and how you do it. Because methodology for these kind of things very, very much interests me. And uh, I'm, into, I'm into understanding various systems. PFF and, and mine are very different. Don't know what you use as a pressure standard for one thing. That's something I've, I've great interest in. Three seconds or two and a half for a pressure? Oh, man, I, I, it sounds so unprofessional, uh, but I'm, I'm going to paraphrase the United States Supreme Court. I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Okay. And <laughs> that makes it subjective, but it also it's the only way I can figure it out, because sometimes two and a half seconds is very different in certain sets than it is in others. You know what I mean? And so it, it's just tough for me, which means that, you know, no one can replicate my system because my system is me. <laughs> Okay, well, that's, that's that's great stuff, Seth. We need to we need to talk about that on the side. Let's uh, let's come back to that another time. So let's move on at the, to the wide receiver core. Um, do we do we we didn't really get through the state of the offensive line because we stopped on Brown, didn't we? We did. Take us we did. The one, if you would. We we did. I would just say um, Joe Tooney. We've only got one game sample size, but against a good defensive group in Cleveland that was well coached, had a good game plan. Tooney looks like he's as advertised, um, including in preseason. He looks the exact same every single snap, no matter who he's playing, no matter what's going on. He's like a robot. It's freakish, but kind of cool to watch. Um, Creed Humphrey has been above expectations. He's been excellent. We'll see if that continues. Um, Trey Smith has been excellent and above expectations, but not as consistent as Humphrey. Lucas Niang is kind of the wild card there. He had a few struggles on Sunday. Um, against the Browns, Clowney gave him some problems, but he is—he's one of those world type guys where there just aren't a lot of guys in the world that weigh about three thirty and can move like him. So it's it's a very very talented group that on paper could be a marked upgrade from last year, despite losing both their tackles. So far, the results are they look okay, but we'll see. Okay, obviously the Ravens going through their own tackle shortage right now with uh, with. Stanley and AV both playing very poorly in week one and they lost their backup tackle by using him as their starting left guard. So they don't really have a backup tackle currently and are are probably going to sign someone this week, I would expect. Uh, But the situation is not uh, sustainable as is. It it, it will create all kinds of problems against any team with decent outside pass rushers. Um, Let's let's go move on to the wide receiver core here and and talk a little bit about what each of them brings to the offense, how they're different, how they're used uh, route wise. So in terms of the wide receiver group, uh, at least if week one is in the indication, um, the only one who matters is Tyree Kill. And everyone else is kind of just serving secondary roles. Um, you know, Andy Reid uses, you know, you've got your Z, your X and your Y. But because he wants every guy to be able to kind of move around and fulfill multiple roles. You can't necessarily count on who's going to line up where, but really the conversation um, starts and ends for the most part with Tyree Hill. 
That's what everyone saw on Sunday. And there's really no confusion about that. Everyone else has a specific niche or a role that they fill. You know, McCole Hardman's an excellent deep threat who can do a few things in terms of drags and stuff over the middle with some potential for yards after catch. He also does some of the uh, uh, jet sweep actions, some of those types of things. But he's been more of a niche role for most of his career. And so far, I haven't seen anything that indicates that's going to change this year. Um, some of their other guys, Demarcus Robinson, Byron Pringle, are kind of jacks-of-all-trades types that they generally need to be schemed open, but they're reliable when they are, right? If a ton of attention is paid to Hill and Kelsey, they're generally going to be able to get open if there's attention elsewhere and make the, make the catch. And that's really all they tend to need because so much of their offense revolves around Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. And then Hill is, they're, they're just, we, you know, you run out of superlatives for superstars after a while. Um, he's one of the better receivers I've watched play. Um, he's very unique as well in the way that he affects games um, with the gravity of his speed and ball skills. And so he's, he's become a superstar over the last couple of years. And, but that's where the wide receiver group, it all, it all orients around Hill. Okay, uh, is there a is there a way the Ravens you might expect them to attack coverage on Hill specifically? Has been press coverage been at all effective in terms of getting timing messed up, or is Mahomes too fluid in terms of his ability to adjust timing with his own ability to move and wander? I would think in terms of how to attack things with Hill, I mean, some of that problem, like you said, Mahomes' ability to wander and and kind of Hill. His, he's really developed his ability to ad-lib along with Mahomes to where there's a little more of a dance there. They break off their routes sooner than most teams, right? And Hill and Kelsey especially both do this. They have both learned to they, – they, they get in their break, they start to run their break, and then you almost always see them peeking towards Mahomes to see what's going on. And then they're gone, right? They, if they if they see the plays breaking down or Mahomes is moving, they, they they immediately convert to the second play. In terms of coverage, I mean, the what most teams have done um, that's had any sort of success is they just they they basically have to bend their coverage towards Hill. You. Generally speaking, I, I don't advise teams to try to just be physical with Hill at the line of scrimmage because he's too quick and he's pretty strong. He's built very very solid. Um, he's only about five nine on a very tall day, and you know, so even weighing only a buck eighty, buck eighty five, he's built very thick, and he's not really bothered by press coverage, and he's quick enough to get away from it. Generally speaking, teams really should just play off him just a little bit, and then try to bend some co- some help his way. Is it, they still motion a lot with him to try and get him free off the line of scrimmage? I know that was something that I, I certainly noticed two and three years ago. Yes, all the time. Um, Reed rarely has a pass play that doesn't feature some form of motion beforehand. Now, sometimes it's the running back. Sometimes it's Kelsey. Sometimes it's Hill. Sometimes it's all three just at different times. But they do like to motion him around, um, especially because of how dangerous he is and how much opposing teams have predicated their coverage around him. That's a great way for them to really discover what kind of coverage they're facing, even if they're not going to alter anything Hill does, right? Even if they motion him and then motion him back, that's something they love to do just to see if they can get any tells as to what the coverage does. All right, let's take a quick break to remind you that Baltimore Ravens football is finally back and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Baltimore Ravens tickets. That's because 
TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, TickPick, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only one you ever need to go to for all your NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of those awful service fees that you know from other ticketing sites, which lets them guarantee the best prices for all their NFL tickets. If you don't believe it, if you find a better price for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. I don't know what you guys are doing. I'm looking at one game. I'm looking at week 10 as the Ravens head to Miami. Not too far of a drive for me. And that's where I'm looking to pick up some tickets. And TickPick is where I'm going to do that. So take a look on TickPick. Visit TickPick. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K dot com slash Ravens today. And use the promo code Ravens to save $10 on your first order of your Baltimore Raven tickets or whatever tickets you want. Check out TickPick and support film study by using the code Ravens. So let's move on to tight end a little bit. And something that the the Chiefs did uh, last year involving Travis Kelsey was run a lot of bunch formations uh, and beat them silly. In fact, beat Patrick Queen silly, if you want to be real specific about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Kelsey a little bit and also formation wise, how they tend to use him to get him free. Sure. Um, Kelsey is such a unique player to watch. And he he's someone I'm going to do my very best to not gush about, um, even more so than Mahomes, just because I think enough people gush about Mahomes. Um, the way I would frame it is I, I've charted probably a few thousand receiver or tight end routes over the course of doing this job for, you know, I don't know, eight to ten years. I have never seen anyone who is always open the way Travis Kelsey is. He's just always open. Um, doesn't zone man, especially zone like zone coverage is just death. He, he, he it's like, he's not even really running routes. He just reads the coverage and says, well, I'm going to go right here. Cause that's where no one is. And I've been told that that's kind of what happens actually a little more than people might think, which is incredibly rare at the NFL level for a player to have that sort of trust from the coaching staff. Um, the Chiefs like to basically they, they love to utilize him in motion, um, putting him out wide or in the slot and then bringing him back towards the line to where they, they'll even line him up kind of at H back. What they like to do is avoid situations where he is having contact initiated against him right off the line of scrimmage because he's not quite as explosive as he used to be. And while he's comfortable dealing with it, he's at his best when he gets a few steps to gauge how he's being played and then employ his routes. And you you noted they love to use bunches last year to try to free him up. You run other receivers at someone, that sort of thing. They didn't do much of that against the Browns. I wouldn't expect it to change completely. Um and, but it is, it's something they keep in the repertoire. I think what they showed a bunch against the Browns is they kept motioning him, motioning him out and then back to the line. They, they just love this exact motion where he essentially is walking back to the line all, right to where he would line up as an H-back when they snapped the ball. And for some reason, he must love the angle or the momentum, but they about half his snaps were like that. And I don't know whether that's a methodology of freeing him or what, but it's something that they consistently love to do with him. Hmm. Okay. That, that is interesting because I mean, they've got a lot of uses for motion between him and Hill and whatnot, uh, that, that to get a player free or get him the best advantage off the line of scrimmage, you might want to use any of those guys with the, with the single motion. Right. That's absolutely the case. They it's, 
it's something they use. People think that Hillman and Kelsey are just singular talents, and they are. But Andy loves to do whatever he can to get them alone, right? In a one-on-one matchup or in between a couple of zone defenders where they have to make choices. And he's just exceptional at it um, all these years into it. He, he's really adapted to utilizing Kelsey's talents well. Um, it just seems like death taxes and Travis Kelsey on third down are the things we can all depend on. All right. Now, the league is very much in love with 12 personnel. Uh, I think there's a there's mm-hmm. a continuing and increasing love affair. And the Chiefs have been part of that with it used to be Bell and Kelsey. I guess Bell is still there, right? Yeah, they brought him back this year. So he was he, he left after 2019 and he was just gone for one year and they brought him back this year. OK, so more of an inline guy in most of the 12 formations they do. Right. He doesn't he doesn't line up wide very often. Right. Correct. Yep. That is not his. Uh, that, that That is not his uh, forte. <laughs> All right. So with versus 12 personnel, have other teams, and I know the Ravens did some of this, uh, used big nickel or versions of that to try and get a, a, a safety on Kelsey as opposed to just a cornerback? Or do most teams try and cover him with a cornerback? It varies. It depends on the team's personnel almost always. Um, teams don't use corners on him as often as I think they should. Um, part of the problem is it really, most corners just aren't built to cover him and that he can just run a really simple in breaking route and he's just too big. You know, there's just not a lot of answers to six foot five, two fifty. And when you're a corner and you're used to defending wide receivers, there's just, there's not enough body to get around, especially when a guy knows exactly where to turn. And so the, the the best answer to Kelsey that I've seen is if you can really jam him up at the line, um, as opposed to Hill, he's not quite quick enough to just get away. Um, that That's the best answer. More so, either that or have Derwin James. Those are the only two answers. Derwin James is the only defender I've seen consistently have success against him in man. And he's a player I really wanted in that in that draft in 2018, but uh, another story for another day. <laughs> uh, let's move on to the defense because we we are kind of running a little bit long here. I realize uh, the thing I always like to get to most first on when we talk defenses is what's the most common uh, base and pass defense look in particular that the that the Chiefs show. So it, let's start with the higher leverage downs and pass defense. What do they like to run out on third and seven, third and eight, third and nine? Generally speaking, what you're going to see with that sort of situation is you're going to usually have four down linemen. You're going to have Anthony Hitchens out there as the linebacker and then a bunch of defensive backs. Um, They they love having three safeties out there. They love Dan Sorensen in Kansas City. Um, The fan base doesn't quite as much. Um, but he all he does is make clutch plays, it seems like, or give up big passing gains. He really doesn't have an in-between. But they, generally speaking, like to run out three safeties in that situation alongside three corners. They, they really love their three safety sets. Okay, so in, in their three safety look, and I assume it's a three safety, three corner dime package is what you're describing here. Right. Do they bring the, the one of those safeties into the box effectively to be a weak side linebacker? Is that how they typically line up at the snap? Or are they very fluid with their safeties? And I know they've got the honey badger and whatnot where they can move them all up at the line of scrimmage. And, and you know, they often got two or three at the line of scrimmage and playing single high. Or how do they align usually? 
Um, it depends whether or not, and as you allude to, whether or not Matthew is around. When he wasn't in the game, they didn't do as much rotating, and they more so just treated Sorensen as kind of like, you know, almost your hybrid linebacker type mm-hmm. position. Um, with him around, and even with Juan Thornhill to a lesser extent, and lately with Legereus Sneed, um, even though he's a corner, they like to utilize him in the slot or even move him around to other other places. They they like to bring people down and Spagnolo. It's interesting. He he really likes to try to leave quarterbacks guessing. He loves to blitz at heart. That's his thing. He loves cover zero and cover one. You know, and just sending the house because the Chiefs personnel isn't always best suited for it. They kind of fight that. So what you usually see more often is you'll see either Sorensen playing that role, that hybrid type role with with Matthew as more of a robber or as part of too deep look. If he's the robber, then Thornhill's usually the deep guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we, we'll see a lot from the from the Ravens this week of a dime team. They in the first game they really kind of announced themselves uh, for 2021, be much more like the 2019 defense, which played over 42 percent dime for the season. And a lot of that was paired up with four outside linebackers on the field at the same time for a pass rush package. It's a, some people call it NASCAR. I call it race car, but it's a, it's a, uh, a package that only Wink Martindale's ever run in Baltimore. The guy who I think would be a really interesting matchup for Kelsey. And I know we're talking about the defense is to try and put either Tyus Bowser or uh, the new, the rookie Adafi Owe on uh, Kelsey because they're fast enough to do it. And they are their best, one is their best coverage linebacker. That's Bowser. He's probably the best coverage outside linebacker in the NFL right now. And then they have they have Owe, who is an extremely long rookie who's very fast, 439, 436 in the 40 range. Um, and, and he can stick, obviously, with Kelsey. He certainly has the size. And with the length of 34 and a half inches, I think he'd, he'd be a good matchup at the line of scrimmage for somebody like Travis. In theory, I would totally agree with you. I can tell you that outside of maybe the Super Bowl with Levante David, and there were a lot of extenuating circumstances there, I have never seen a linebacker have success against Kelsey. Not Luke Keekley, not anyone. Um, it's just the the route running just appears to be too much. Now, every year, Kelsey slows down a little bit more. And so I think he would actually, either of those guys would probably be a superior athlete to him at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least, you know, you're, you're dealing on equal plane and they've got some size to maybe be physical with him if they're able to get him at the stem at, to where he can't do his... They, it looks so slow, but it just works every time. Um that that would be if they're able. Let me just say it this way: if they were able to make that work, it would be a first. Um, but they are talent, really talented players, and that would that would alter everything about what Baltimore has to do on defense, right? If they could actually man up, that's one of the reasons the Chargers, when Derwin James is healthy, are able to have some success against the Chiefs' offense because they're they're one of the few that can assign one man to Travis Kelsey and be okay. So that would be huge for Baltimore if they could make that matchup work. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Owe is is still very green, but uh, he he will fit into the Ravens' plans in some significant way against the Chiefs because I think they really need to manufacture either pressure or coverage, one or the other, in mm-hmm. this game to have a chance. And so they're they're, they're going to have to figure out how to get that done. Yeah, and that'll be it'll be interesting because they're going to want to manufacture it in some way, shape, or form. But obviously, what we've seen previous years, and I think you and I, if I recall, talked about this before last year's game, the the idea of blitzing 
and sending extra guys to provide that pressure, generally speaking, against Mahomes is a non-starter. It just is not the way to go about things. And so if they're able to manufacture it more in terms of matching up in certain places where the Chiefs don't expect, that could provide them with it, with a personnel advantage that maybe the Chiefs don't see coming. And that would be a great way to manufacture pressure without necessarily sending extra guys. Right. right. I mean, there's four-man rushes and there's four-man rushes, as I say it. And, and the Ravens do a lot of zone blitzing, a lot yep. of, uh, of, of drop and blitz uh, at the same time, a lot of stunting as well. Uh, and they simulate pressure pretty well. Um, I think against Mahomes, simulated pressure is probably less effective than against other quarterbacks because I think he reads it pretty well. Uh, but it, what do you think about that, first of all? Uh, I think he does He does pretty well against simulated pressure. It was something he struggled with in 18. When the Ravens and Chiefs matched up last year, they really bugged him with that. Um, and that was something that he struggled with early on. And honestly, um, pressure in general with uh with you know with the old deal Belichickian have eight guys on the line of scrimmage and then you rush four and drop four and no one knows which mm-hmm. and that gave him a ton of problems in 2018 since then he's improved every you can see it as kind of a point of emphasis um but i i do think what the what the ravens do in terms of stunts and that sort of stuff that is something that has at times given him and or the offensive line some problems in the past all right, so we'll be interested to see how that works out. Let's go back to the Chiefs' defense for a second. Um, we didn't. We talked a little bit about Chris Jones and how what's an appropriate snap count level for him, but let's talk about across the line of scrimmage, the rotation and stat management for the defensive linemen and, and that defensive line group individually, if you want to talk about them. Sure. Um, so, you know, Jaron Reed was there, a guy that they didn't expect to be able to get a guy who could rush from, you know, three tech to one tech to five tech. And they were they're very excited about that. I think that's one reason they're able to play Chris Jones on the edge so much this year is they have a pass rusher that they trust to win some one on one matchups on the interior and also the development of Tershawn Wharton and Colin Saunders. I think that's allowed them to be a little more flexible with where he goes. And so that's what you're going to largely see with the rotation, especially on pass downs. When you're on, when you're on, you know, early downs, first and second downs, you're going to see a lot more of Derek Nottie, who's easily their best run defender. Um, and he's going to, he's played an important role in other games against the Ravens, just because of your, the, the run game that you guys bring to the table. It's the most varied and, and impressive in the NFL, in my opinion. And you need a nose tackle who can hold the line against some of those combo blocks and who can really stop from, and also be smart enough to, to not get his head turned the wrong way as plays are going. So that that's largely what you're going to see. Frank Clark is supposed to be back um, at the other defensive end spot, but he is, he's nursing a hamstring and it's just tough to say how long that's going to linger. You know, hamstring injuries can be tricky. They might be, he might be completely fine now. It might linger the entire season. And so you might see a healthy dose of, of Mike Dana and Alex Okafor rotating in on the edge. Well, he's, he's got to be salivating after seeing what happened at right tackle for the Ravens uh, this last week. Uh, Villanueva was terrible. Stanley was frankly terrible, too. Uh, so it's it's uh, I would think every edge rusher is wanting to get their snaps in against the Ravens. And, you know, I would say, I mean, obviously, you know, Stanley, he's shown that that's not who he is. You'd think that's just a one week thing. I, I would assume and I'm assuming the, the Ravens are probably game planning for this. You would think that the Chiefs are 
maybe planning at this point, depending on Clark's health, or maybe not even, maybe lining up Jones a little more often at that left defensive end. That's where he got one of his sacks against the Browns. And given how Villanueva struggled, I think it would be kind of crazy for them to not line up Jones there and see how he does. Because if nothing else, you can affect the entire scheme in terms of them trying to provide him with some help. Yeah, absolutely. Something happened, by the way, in Las Vegas that I'd never... I never noticed before. I'm sure it's happened other times. I'm sure other quarterbacks, you know, knowing exactly what they want, have done this. But for for the Ravens, a team that allows that edge defender to come in the backfield on run on you know read plays all the time, they they intentionally do not block that edge defender a fair amount. This was strange to me. Lamar Jackson went to Latavius Murray before a play, and he said, "Go line up there on the line of scrimmage like a t- tight end and and chip block the." Uh, left defensive end, and it, it was really? it wasn't anybody great. It was Carl Nassib, you know, Mister <laughs> Investment Guy, <laughs> and, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's just he was just tired of getting pressure from both sides, and he's very good at at eluding pressure from the backside if it's the kind that Stanley normally gives up, which is kind of a bull rush back into the pocket or or one where he is consistently giving ground to mirror the defender. He's good at moving out of that, but he can't have it come from both sides at the same time. So it's just an odd play. And I don't know how often you see that with Mahomes because, you know, he's certainly a very confident quarterback at this time where he just says, here, get up there, line up, block him, and then go out on a route kind of thing. Uh, that is unusual, like to actually to see that him go out of the way to make that adjustment himself. That's definitely a different thing to do, especially from a, for, with a running back, although Murray's an excellent pass blocker. Uh, so I've heard. <laughs> I don't think we've seen yet. So uh, um, it was a tough game. It was a tough game for pass blocking all the way around in this one. To be sure, honest. sure, sure. That was that was a great response. Too, that was a too soon response. I, I like. Yes. I was like, oh, I've heard that, but we'll see. Yes. Uh, a lot of things about Murray look look not that good. And the Ravens bringing in three ancient backs is so against my philosophy of, of how, where you acquire running back talent. But everything's turned on its ear this year because there are no young running backs. All the small school backs are staying in school another year. you know. And, and so the draft was so razor thin. You look around all of the uh, practice squads around the league, you know, there's half a dozen young blacks there, but uh, you know, the guy that the Ravens probably would have liked to keep is Nate McCrary. And he's the guy who was, you know, okay for them in preseason. But now you look around at boy, he might be the best option. And, you know, they let right, him go Right. Right. It, it happened fast. I was bummed to see both those injuries. I mean, it's just a couple of really excellent running backs. And for that to happen, consecutively it, that that's that's very tough it says something about the ravens that they still function as well as they did on offense yeah and they they, they, they did have some yards and their number one back is, is legitimately going to be very good tyson williams is a legitimate talent and and he does some things very positively what he hasn't figured out yet and i, I know we're talking about the ravens now for a second is he hasn't figured out the mesh point with lamar yet and lamar needs an extended mesh point to really be able to maximize what he can do with a read and a running back naturally wants to secure that football kind of move quickly through the mesh point to make his own cut. And what he needs to do is, is have that kind of very, very minuscule delay going through the mesh point and also be aware that Lamar might pull that ball very late. Mark Ingram, JK Dobbins, Gus Edwards, they all understood that completely. Wilson, sorry, Williams, who's a tremendous running talent, has not got it down yet. And they had a fumble. They recovered it, but but they had a fumble in the first game due to it. And it's, it's bringing back memories of 2018 again when Lamar had a lot of mesh point related fumbles. Right. Well, it's such an unusual way 
for the run game to work at the NFL level. Mm-hmm. And, and it should be. I mean, Jackson's a singular talent, and it would be crazy to not use that singular gift. Um, but it definitely creates a situation where there's going to be an adjustment period. Um, yeah, that's it'll be interesting how long it takes for that sort of thing to really to really go into effect. That feels like something that could be practiced on a fair amount, even outside of normal practice hours. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that is something and they're really going to need to work on it. But, but live fire reps are needed because running backs just don't process things in the same way. They're, they're, they're thrown at more inputs are thrown at them when they're under live fire in terms of, okay, I see what he's doing with his right leg. I see what's going on here. I need to beat this guy. And all of a sudden he's holding the ball too tight and Lamar can't pull it. I mean, it just, it's, it takes live fire reps, I believe to, to get that mesh point down. But, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's something you, you would think, boy, you know, you, you got to hold it loose like this. There's a certain way you hold it. You got to do it until you're, you know, a step and a half by him just to be safe kind of thing. And then you, and then you close up, but. All right, let's get back to the Chiefs here because that's what people want to listen to here. Uh, take us through the linebacker core, maybe what platooning is going on, if any. Do they do they do some of that at the inside linebacker position? Uh, not not particularly at the inside linebacker position. So right now, Willie Gay Jr. is injured. And so that he was the one everyone was really excited to see him. The ideal, what, what everyone wanted the Chiefs to start, including myself, was Anthony Hitchens and, and Willie Gay Jr. Instead, Ben Neiman's taking those starting snaps. Um, and then uh, coming in as the third linebacker, because you and me both know, you know, nickel is the new base or dime, frankly. Sure. And so Bolton is Nick Bolton, a uh, rookie out of Missouri. He is, he's coming in as the third linebacker. So those are the only guys you're generally going to see get any sort of time. And really, if, if it weren't for the fact that gay is injured, either Neiman or Bolton would be seen hardly any time. They, they just don't do a ton there. And part of that is because honestly, their linebacker depth is not terrific in terms of guys who can proven who are proven to be able to move the needle even a little bit. Um, they're, they're guys with specific skill sets. Um, Bolton is their attempt as is Willie Gay jr. To eventually graduate to a point to where they've got two linebackers on the field that they're comfortable with on passing downs that have better sideline to sideline speed. Although that's much more gay than Bolton. Um, Nick Bolton is basically their effort at a slightly more athletic Anthony Hitchens. And so they're trying to move a certain direction here, but as of right now, it remains a linebacker group that is very particular skill sets rather than being varied. And so you, you, you basically see a couple guys get the majority of the snaps. So who's the who's got the uh, green dot right now? Hitchens. Um, he's yep. Yeah, Hitchens is there. The, he is by and large the the quarterback of the front seven. Um, he's wildly respected. The fan base has been very lukewarm on him um, ever since they brought him in from Dallas. They kind of paid him like a star linebacker, and his play has been average-ish, occasionally above average. Last year he was above average, but he just he he just lacks great play speed. And so that automatically in the modern NFL limits what you can do as a linebacker. Um, And so he, but he is a very intelligent player and he's constantly realigning guys. He is, he is the, the brain of the front seven, similar to how Matthew was the brain of the secondary. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's obviously very important to have. I'm noticing Hitchens looks like played 47 out of 60 snaps in this, in this last game. So do they go without a green dot player or do they have another linebacker who would have been in there with a different helmet on those plays? 
I I would think it would be Neiman when it wasn't Hitchens, but I I haven't even checked those snaps if I'm being honest. It's uh, but they, I did notice he was off the field at times. They trust Neiman more in some of those obvious passing downs than frankly i think they should that would be the the short way of saying it they 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 he he's a guy who they're hoping can kind of recapture what he did as a rookie where he was better than people expected but he he also has some play speed issues okay all right uh well let's move to the secondary and talk through them uh one at a time if you like or in in concert however you like to do it absolutely um well, you know with the secondary the chiefs right now they i actually wrote about them immediately prior to the season, um, the cornerback group especially. So the safety group, you you have the trio of Tyron Matthew. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone kind of knows what he does. Uh, Juan Thornhill, who is – he had an excellent week one by and large. He had a couple of missed tackles early, but he forced a crucial fumble. He made some crucial pass breakups. Overall, had a really good game. He's their guy with significant range who's able to play that single high role has really good ball skills. And in my opinion, is at his best on the back third of the field, but they do like to bring him up at times. Um, he is a really good sideline to sideline defender. He doesn't mind being physical as well. Sorensen is one of those more kind of classic strong safety types. Um, where he's limited coverage wise. Like if you put him one-on-one against a tight end or even a running back, you're going to have some problems. Um, He's able to take the majority of the snaps because the coaching staff trusts him to always do his assignment, even if he's somewhat limited physically. The cornerback group is what's more interesting to me because the the safety trio is the same as it was last year. They they had um, Armani Watts rotating in last week with Tyron Matthew out. He was in the COVID protocol. He's now tested negative, so he's practicing again. So it'll just be those three main trio that main trio of guys. With the cornerback situation, it's interesting because. The only first rounders they have in the rotation are Mike Hughes and DeAndre Baker, both of whom they acquired for peanuts after they didn't work out at their first place. Hmm. Other than that, the highest investment they have in any corner is Legereus Sneed with a fourth round pick. Um, Charverius Ward, they traded an offensive lineman who was going to get cut for. Rashad Fenton was a six round draft pick. Chris Lemons, they basically signed to the practice squad. So, in a league where everyone is kind of scrambling to grab corners, they have kind of gone a different direction in some ways in trying to make do with a certain type of corner and, and reclamation projects. You know, that's one of the things that GMs in the NFL just really have to get smart about. Everybody can spend top dollar to get the player they like at any position. The really great GMs know, where can I economize on cap? Where can I get a player who's 80% of the player at 20% of the price and and make that work? And and for the Ravens, the, the position has been safety. They've got, you know, their defensive captain is a six-round pick, Chuck Clark. Their other safety is a six-round pick, Deshaun Elliott. They got a third-round pick this year that they might have overdrafted as their as their dime safety that they add in and can play deep. But um, they've, they've had a long history of these super productive dime backs going really back to 96. Um, where they where they have done a uh, you know gotten them for a sixth round pick or less. So I really I really appreciated that about the Ravens over the years, and it's good to hear other teams are, are figuring out how to do it. I wish the Chiefs couldn't do it at corner, but but that, it's good to know that they <laughs> they think about it. Well, and that it is definitely an interesting thing to see. I uh, I, I we'll see if it works, right? Because that's the big thing. If it blows up in your face, then it's more a mistake than a tactic. But uh, it's something that. They seem like they're being, at this point, it feels intentional 
And it feels like maybe they think we can identify the guys with the skill sets we want and we trust the coaching staff to utilize them. Yeah. That's uh, I, I, I think that's you, you do draft for your coaching staff a lot of the time. And the Ravens at offensive line, I think, have done some of that. But it makes a lot of sense. If you think you've got good coaches at certain position groups and you can draft to that strength with the type of player that you think that they can make good or they've had success with in the past. I think that's that's just a great drafting strategy. All right, let's uh, let's move forward here. I think we've gone through most of the defense here, but is is there any expectation you have in terms of how the Chiefs would defend some of the Ravens' speed or the Ravens' run game this week that might be different from normal? It's it's kind of an interesting thing. The Chiefs' defense really struggled in Week One for most of the game, and. It was in some ways that people really didn't expect them to. They weren't quite as strong at the point of attack as people were hoping they would be. They weren't quite as disciplined as people were expecting for a defense that consists with quite a few veteran players um, against play action and some of that stuff. Um, I, I didn't see them really throw anything at the Browns that I haven't seen before from the defense overall, other than, you know, the stuff everyone knew they were going to do, like shifting Chris Jones, to the edge, that kind of stuff. And so I really come into this game with absolutely no idea what they're going to do or how they're going to attack it. Because obviously no one sits there and re-ups previous strategies because everyone's been trying to figure out how to make things different than last year, the year before. Obviously the Ravens aren't going to attack the Chiefs defense the same way as they have the last few years because Spagnolo's group, generally speaking, has done fairly well against the Ravens in comparison to some others in the league. You know, when you compare how the Chiefs do against other teams and how the Ravens do against other teams, the Chiefs do fairly well against the Ravens, relatively speaking, compared to what you'd expect, like, you know, compared to like the Raiders who routinely torch the Chiefs defense. Um, so it, it'll, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what they do. I'm curious if they're going to go with a really heavy front with uh, it, which is what they've been doing and maybe see whether or not that does the trick in terms of trying to at least counteract that run game. One interesting thing with Jones on the edge, because he's a less disciplined player than the guys that they've usually had at the edge. I think you're going to see some opportunity for, for, for Jackson or the runners with some counters to maybe break a few big runs to his side. Okay. That'd be interesting. Uh, we, we, we certainly will be hoping for something that, that, that would create some sort of edge against the Chiefs. Is there a player you think that matches up well against the Ravens? I, we don't need to score predictions, but maybe a player, maybe on each side of the ball, if you like, who you think really matches up well. Um, I think it, it, the, the easy answer, and I'm going to use the cheating answer, um, I think on the Chiefs' offensive side of the ball, I think Patrick Mahomes does match up really well against what the Ravens do on defense. Um, they, the Ravens love to blitz. They love to manufacture pressure. They, they love to, to, to do things that just against Mahomes actually is one of the things I wrote about after last year's week three game. It just isn't something that tends to work against Mahomes, whether it's because he sees it and then throws to the vacant spot or because he just doesn't get brought down by the blitz anyway. And now you've got him running towards a sideline with only four guys in coverage, that sort of thing. So that's obviously a cheating answer because you could use Mahomes all the time. Um, on defense, I'm going to flip it because I think it would be more enjoyable, even though this isn't what you asked me. I'm really, I'm going to flip it and say I'm really afraid, like I am every year, of, of Anthony Hitchens against the Ravens team just because I think he lacks that sideline-to-sideline speed to counter a lot of what the Ravens do. 
As much as I like him as a hard-nosed player, and I think that's great in terms of some of the things the Ravens do, but some of the way the Ravens like to stretch the horizontal, I think that can take advantage of Hitchens. All right. All right. Something to look forward to. Seth, I so appreciate having a conversation about football with you. Again, I want to talk at some point with you about just offensive line scoring methodology and go through that a little bit to talk about, you know, what you're trying to count and what you're trying to look at play by play. But tell folks again, one more place where they, where they can find you on Twitter, because I don't think you hit on that earlier, and then where they can find your regular work. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, my, my Twitter handle, I've kept it the same since before I had this, uh, had this wild and crazy job. It's at real. MN as in Minnesota Chiefs fan. I've decided I'll never change it because I'm still a Chiefs fan, even though I, I, I get to write about them. Um, or you can find me on the Chief in the North newsletter where it's obviously largely Chiefs focused, but I try to make some points about the broader game as well. All right. Outstanding stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on, Seth. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. <laughs> catch those springtime vibes all over arizona break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks take a hike among the wildflowers just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees Discover Arizona's best-kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.